This message was presented at the GYC 2012 conference in Seattle, Washington. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. I'd like to review just very briefly uh, the chronology of the ministry of Christ from the moment of his baptism until the moment of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. As we know, the ministry, the earthly ministry of Christ lasted approximately three and a half years. Uh, During this period of three and a half years, Jesus developed the perfect character that is required of us. In other words, this is the period, and of course it included all of his life, but particularly his ministry, is where Jesus developed the life that God requires from us. In other words, in the camp, he lived the life that all of us should live. Then at the end of the three and a half years, Jesus went to the altar of sacrifice, following the sequence of the sanctuary. And in the altar of sacrifice, Jesus died. In other words, he bore our sins upon himself. Then he moves on to the laver. I don't really have time to get into all of the, uh, uh, all of the description of the laver, but the laver is called in uh, Titus 3 verse 5, the laver of regeneration. Uh, And, of course, it represents the resurrection of Christ. And then, uh, after Jesus resurrects, he spends 40 days on planet Earth. And what was he doing during those 40 days? Two things. Number one, he was appearing to people to uh, persuade them that he had resurrected from the dead. And secondly, we're told in Acts chapter 1 and verse 3 that he taught his disciples the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Basically, what that means is uh, they had misunderstood Bible prophecy. And so Jesus, during those 40 days, explained to them the prophecies that had been fulfilled in him. And the prophecies that were going to be fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. In other words, he took those 40 days to explain to his disciples the prophecies that had been fulfilled in him, that they had misunderstood, and the prophecies that were going to be fulfilled uh, with what he was going to do on the day of Pentecost. So after the 40 days, Jesus gathered with his disciples on the Mount of Olives, and the Bible tells us that he ascended to heaven. Let's read about that in Acts chapter 1 and verses 9 through 11. Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. It says, Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, Behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. And so Jesus disappeared from their sight. He went to heaven. And we're told that the disciples went back to Jerusalem. They went back to the upper room. And they spent ten days in the upper room preparing for what was going to happen 10 days later. During those 10 days, we're told that they prayed, such as they had never prayed before. They studied the prophecies of Scripture, such as they had never studied before. They ironed out all of their personal differences. They were emptied of self, so that on the day of Pentecost, they could be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what they did during those 10 days in the upper room, between the ascension of Christ and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Now the question is, what was happening with Christ during those ten days? You know, we usually focus on what the disciples were doing in the upper room. But the question is, what was happening with Jesus from the moment of his ascension until the moment that the Holy Spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost? Does the Bible have anything to say about that? I believe that it does. Now, let's read about who was present there in the upper room. Acts chapter 1 and verse 13 explains who was present there in the upper room uh, where the disciples were gathered together during those ten days. It says, And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. And now comes the list. Number one, Peter. Number two, James. Number three, John. Number four, Andrew. Number five, Philip. Number six, Thomas. Number seven, Bartholomew. Number eight, Matthew. 
Number nine, James the son of Alphaeus. Number ten, Simon the zealot. And number eleven, Judas the son of James. Now what's unusual about this? There is one of the disciples who is missing. And so now, after giving the list, Peter stands up and he has to explain why there's only eleven. And in verses 18 and 19, we're not going to read them because time is short, but in verses 18 and 19, Peter explains what happened to apostle number 12. He tells a story about, you know, and uh, when you read the Gospels in the book of Acts, there appears to be a contradiction between the two stories. Because in the Gospels it says that he went and he hung himself. In the book of Acts it says he fell headlong and his belly exploded and his innards came out. And so you say, how do you reconcile both of those? Well, Ellen White does it beautifully. She says that Judas was the tallest and and heaviest of the disciples. He was an imposing figure. And, uh, you know, there was a branch that hung over a ledge, and he put the rope over over the branch and around his neck, and he jumped. And when he jumped, the branch broke. And so he fell a long distance to the ground, and when he hit the ground, he, his, uh, his belly exploded and his innards came out. And she also says that later on that day, when Jesus was on the way of the cross, there was a gasp from the multitude because the dogs were eating Judas's innards. But uh, fortunately, we're don't, not going to lunch quite yet. <laughs> uh, but anyway, Peter says, I got to explain why there's only 11. Why, why we don't have apostle number 12. So he explains it. And then after he explains it, he says to the people there, we need to name a successor in place of Judas. We need to have apostle number 12. Now, why would Peter say to the multitude gathered there, we need to have apostle number 12? The reason is simple. The apostles now understood Bible prophecy. Go with me to Acts chapter 1, and let's read verse 16 And then we'll read verse 20. We'll skip the verses in between because that tells the story of what happened to Judas and we've already mentioned that. Did Peter now understand Bible prophecy? He most certainly did. You can tell that during those 40 days Jesus had explained prophecy to them and that they had studied during the 10 days before the day of Pentecost. Because it says in verse 16, Men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. So what were there prophecies that needed to be fulfilled that were given by David about Judas? Yes. Now what were those prophecies? Verse 20. For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his dwelling place be desolate, and let no one live in it. In other words, Judas was not going to return to his home. His home was going to be desolate. That's Psalm 69, verse 25. And then, Psalm 109, 7 and 8, which is quoted by Peter, says, And let another take his office. So Peter says, Folks, Bible prophecy tells us that Judas was not going to return to his home. His home was going to be left vacant. And prophecy also told us that somebody else has to take his office. And so we have to fulfill that task of naming a successor in place of Judas. Now, as I mentioned before, there's a certain myth, and that is that uh, it was God's plan that the Apostle Paul be Apostle number 12, but that the disciples jumped the gun, and they, uh, they did this before they were really supposed to do it, and they elected Matthias instead. Now, um, this uh, simply it does not square with the facts. I'm going to give you five reasons why it was God's plan that Matthias be apostle number 12. The first reason is found in Acts 21 and 22. Acts 1, 21 and 22. Notice the qualification that the successor had to have. It says there, Therefore of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. What was the qualification that was necessary for the successor? He had to have been with the disciples as an eyewitness 
from the days of John the Baptist till the ascension of Christ. Does the Apostle Paul fit that qualification? He does not, because he was converted three and a half years after the death of Jesus Christ. There's a second reason. Acts 1, 24 to 26 tells us that they followed the right process. And it also explains that they're praying that God will show them whom he has chosen. This is what it says. And they prayed and said, You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they cast lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. So my question is, uh, did they pray for God to show whom God had chosen to replace Judas? Absolutely, they followed the right process. Now in the third place, Ellen White comments on the process that they followed. And notice what she has to say. This is in Spirit of Prophecy, Volume 3, page 264. Spirit of Prophecy, Volume 3, page 264. Speaking about the election of the successor, she says this, Two men were selected who, in the careful judgment of the believers, were they careful? Yes, in the careful judgment of the believers, were best qualified for the place. But the disciples, distrusting their ability to decide the question further, referred it to one that knew all hearts. They sought the Lord in prayer to ascertain which of the two men was more suitable for the important position of trust. Now notice carefully what she says. As an a position of trust as an apostle of Christ. The Spirit of God selected Matthias for the office. Who selected the, the, the successor? The Spirit of God. Fourth reason is that Ellen White makes it explicit that God chose Saul of Tarsus to replace Stephen, not Judas. Notice in the book Acts of the Apostles, page 102, Acts of the Apostles 102, she says a mightier than Satan had chosen Saul to take the place of the martyred Stephen, to preach and suffer for his name, and to spread far and wide the tidings of salvation through his blood. So in other words, Paul was to succeed Stephen. He was not to succeed Judas. Now before we finish our study, I'm going to give you the fifth reason, which is uh, the, most, the strongest of the five reasons. I believe that there's enough evidence already, but the fifth is ironclad. Now, but we still need to ask the question, why did the disciples feel a special urgency to elect the successor of Judas before the Holy Spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost. Why not just wait, uh, you know, until uh, the Holy Spirit was poured out, then they would have discernment because they would have the Spirit, and then, uh, you know, they would take their time and they would look at different candidates and they will, would ex elect the successor for Judas. Why did they feel that it was necessary to have an election of the successor before the Holy Spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost? We know that they had to elect a successor. But why the hurry? I believe the answer to this question is the meaning of the number 12. Now, if you go to Acts chapter 1 and verse 17, it says that Judas was numbered with the apostles. And when Matthias was elected, according to verse 26, it says that he was numbered with the apostles. In other words, there's something significant about the number 12. There had to be 12. And so we need to answer the question, what is the special significance of the number 12? And does that have anything to do with the urgency of electing a successor before the Holy Spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost? So let's examine the meaning of the number 12. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 1 is a key verse. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 1. This is a verse that we've read many times. It says, Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman. What does the woman represent? The woman represents the church, but not the church in general. It represents the faithful church. We're going to see that in a moment. So it says, Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman, clothed with the sun, 
with the moon under her feet and on her head a garland of 12 stars. So what number is identified with the woman? The number 12 is identified with the woman. Now, the woman we know represents the church. And usually the way that we determine this is by reading, for example, Ephesians 5, where it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Or we quote Jeremiah 6, verse 2, I've compared the daughter of Zion to a comely and beautiful woman. And that's not a bad way of doing it. But we can, we can explain what the woman represents just by going to Daniel and Revelation, allowing them to explain what the woman represents. Let's pursue this. Let's go to Daniel 7, verse 25. Daniel 7, and verse 25. Speaking about the little horn, it says he shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High. That's one detail I want us to remember. He shall persecute the saints of the Most High, shall intend to change times and law, then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time and times and half a time. Summarizing, it says the little horn, and what does the little horn represent? The Roman Catholic papacy. The little horn was going to persecute whom? The saints of the Most High for how long? Time, times, and the dividing of times, or a half a time. Now, let's compare Revelation 12 and verses 13 and 14. Revelation 12, 13 and 14, with what we just read from Daniel chapter 7. It says, Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman. Now, who is the persecutor in Daniel 7? The little horn. Who is the the little horn persecuting? The saints. Here, who is the persecutor? The dragon. Who is he persecuting? The woman. Now, you say, are you saying then that the woman represents the saints as you compare both of the verses? Yes. Let's finish reading verse 14. It says, but the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. Is that the same time period as the little horn? Yes. So when you compare the two verses, Daniel 7 says the little horn persecuted the saints of the Most High for time, times, the dividing of time. When you go to Revelation 12, it says the dragon persecutes the woman, which is the same as the saints, for time, times, and the dividing of time. So the woman represents what? The saints of the Most High. Are you with me? And you, and you determine that just from the book of Daniel and comparing the book of Revelation. Now we need to ask the question, okay, at which stage of the history of the woman is Revelation chapter 12 describing? Is this the Old Testament church or is this the New Testament church in Revelation 12 verse 1, this woman that has the crown that has 12 stars? Actually, in Revelation 12 verse 1, it represents the Old Testament church. And you say, how do you know that? It's very simple. We're told in verse 2 that the woman has a male child in her womb. Who is that male child? That male child is Jesus. He has not been born yet. So it cannot be the New Testament church if Jesus hasn't been born yet. Are you following me? Incidentally, the woman here, folks, the woman does not primarily represent Mary. The woman represents the Old Testament church. Although Mary is the last in line of the Old Testament church from which the Messiah is born. Are you following me? The woman represents the Old Testament church. Was Jesus born from the Old Testament church? Was he a descendant of of the Holy Line? Of course he was. That's why you have genealogies. You have the genealogy uh, from Adam to Noah in Genesis chapter 5. And then you have the genealogy from Noah all the way to Abraham in Genesis chapter 11. And then in Matthew chapter 1, you have the genealogy from Abraham to Christ. The purpose of the genealogy is to show that God always had a holy line from which the Messiah would come. So the woman represents the Old Testament church. Now let me ask you a dumb question. Did the woman exist before the child? Yes, of course. Because the child is born from the woman. So the woman, in Revelation 12 verse 1, represents the Old Testament church. But listen carefully. The woman later comes to represent the New Testament church. Because she then flees to the wilderness 
for 1,260 years. So in other words, what I'm saying is the woman represents God's church in all ages. It represents the Old Testament church and it represents what? It represents the New Testament church. But in Revelation 12 verse 1, it represents the Old Testament church. After that, it represents the New Testament church. And what is the number that is, that is linked to this woman in Scripture? The number 12. Did she have the crown with 12 stars before the child was born? Yes. Did she have the crown with 12 stars after the child was born? Yes. Absolutely. So the number 12 is identified with the history of God's people in the Old Testament and the New Testament church. Now you say, what do the 12 stars represent? Let's go to Genesis 37, verses 9 and 10. Genesis 37, 9 and 10. You remember it mentions moon, sun, moon, and stars? Now notice where that language comes from. Genesis 37, verses 9 and 10. Speaking about a dream that Joseph had, it says, Then he dreamed still another dream, and told it to his brothers, and said, Look, I have dreamed another dream. And this time the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars bowed down to me. Now you say, see, that doesn't, that's not related because it says 11 stars. Let me ask you, who would the 12th star be? The 12th star would be Joseph. And so notice, it says, 11 stars bowed to, down to me, and his brothers understood what he was saying. So he told it to his father and his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down to the earth before you? So you have the father, and you have the mother, and you have the twelve sons. In other words, in the Old Testament, the number twelve is identified with the twelve sons of Jacob, which later became the twelve tribes of Israel. Go with me to Genesis 49, verse 28, and we'll see that. Genesis 49 and verse 28. After Jacob mentions all of his sons and the, the characteristics that his sons have and that they will pass on to their posterity, it says in Genesis 49 verse 28, all these, all the, they've been mentioned individually, all these are the twelve tribes of Israel. And this is what their father spoke to them. And he blessed them. He blessed each one according to his own blessing. So how many were the founders of the Old Testament church? The founders of the Old Testament church, the representatives of the Old Testament church, were the 12 sons of Jacob. But listen, the 12 sons of Jacob were 12 individuals that founded the Old Testament church, but then they multiplied and formed a great nation. Now, how many were the founders of the New Testament church? Do you think Jesus just said, now let me see, let me choose a number of disciples I'm going to choose. Uh, seven, perfect. Now, I like that number, seven. No, 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 no. Uh, four, universality. No, not that one. Uh, three for the Trinity. No, no, no. I think I'll choose 12. Did Jesus purposely choose 12? You better believe he did. Because through the 12 founders of the New Testament church, they would preach the gospel and they would multiply and also become a great worldwide nation. Now, Mark 3, verses 14 through 19. Mark 3, verses 14 through 19 speaks about Jesus appointing 12. It says, Then he appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out demons. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that means uh, sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. So how many disciples did Jesus appoint? Twelve founders of the New Testament church, just like there had been twelve founders of the Old Testament church. Now you might be wondering if we're on the right track, so let's see what the little old lady had to say. How about it? She knew this. See, people are critical of Ellen White. People, there are two kinds of people that criticize Ellen White. 
The first kind of person is people who never read her. And the second kind of person is, are those who read her with the intention of criticizing. You know, and if you, if you fit any of these two categories, you're not going to get a blessing. I'll tell you, the more I read the spirit of prophecy, the more amazed I am at the light that this woman had. You know, people say, oh, she wasn't a theologian. So you're saying the Holy Spirit is not a theologian? <laughs> she was inspired by the Holy Spirit. I mean, I'll take her, I'll take her any day over any seminary professor. Now, we need seminary professors. Don't get me wrong. I had many excellent seminary professors, but they're no comparison to the Holy Spirit. Now, notice what Ellen White had to say in Acts of the Apostles, page 19. As in the Old Testament, the twelve patriarchs stood as representatives of Israel, so the twelve apostles stood as representatives of the gospel church. She puts it very, very simply. And so, what we find is that the number 12 is the number that represents God's people in all ages. The Old Testament church, it's 12 founders that then multiply into a great nation. And the New Testament church, which begins with 12 individual founders, and then they preach, and people believe their message, and the church multiplies and becomes, so to speak, a great nation nation. But you say we haven't answered the question. Why did they have to elect the successor before the day of Pentecost? Well, we needed all of this background in order to understand the real reason. Let me talk just a little bit about what happened during those 10 days between the ascension of Christ and when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost. You say, do we have any biblical description about what happened to Jesus during those 10 days? We know what happened to those who were gathered in the upper room. But do we have information about what happened to Jesus? What was taking place with him in heaven? Yes, we do. Go with me to Leviticus chapter 8. Leviticus chapter 8. And we're going to read verses 6 through 12. Here you have the symbolism. Here you have the, uh, you have, uh, the type, if you please, of the anti-type that would be fulfilled with Christ. This is speaking about Uh, something that was done before the tabernacle services were begun. Now, you remember that a tabernacle was built in the wilderness, and and then um, Aaron was set aside as high priest, and he began serving in the sanctuary. Now, before Aaron began serving in the sanctuary, something had to take place. Now, notice Leviticus 8, verses 6 through 12. Then Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water. And now, notice what Moses is going to do with Aaron. And he put the tunic on him, girded him with the sash, clothed him with the robe, and put the ephod on him. And he girded him with the intricately woven band of the ephod, and with it tied the ephod on him. Then he put the breastplate on him, And he put the Urim and Thummim in the breastplate. And he put the turban on his head. Also on the turban on its front, he put the golden plate, the holy crown, as the Lord had commanded Moses. What is Moses doing with Aaron here? Piece by piece, he is clothing him to be high priest. Correct? But that's not all he does. Notice what it continues saying in verse 10. Also Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and all that was in it and consecrated them. Is it necessary to anoint the whole tabernacle because Aaron is going to serve in it? Absolutely. Verse 11, he sprinkled some of it on the altar seven times and anointed the altar and all its utensils and the laver and its base to consecrate them. So what is he doing? He's he's sanctifying the sanctuary because Aaron, the high priest, who who has been clothed, is going to serve as high priest in the sanctuary. But there's more. Notice verse 12. And he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to what? Anointed him to consecrate him. So three things are happening here in this passage. Number one, Moses clothes Aaron 
with all of the pieces of the garments of the high priest. Then he sets aside and sanctifies the sanctuary where Aaron is going to serve. And then he anoints Aaron with oil upon himself to set him aside. Now there's a sound that describes this ceremony of the anointing of Aaron. Psalm 133, if you go with me, Psalm 133. This is very interesting. I call it the Pentecostal psalm. Immediately you're going to see the relationship between this psalm and what happened on the day of Pentecost. Here we are told, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. What comes to mind when you read that, for brethren to dwell in unity? When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all of one accord. So you know this is talking about Pentecost. This is the type. In other words, it's the Old Testament symbolism that will be fulfilled on a greater scale with Christ when he is inaugurated as high priest. Now notice what else we have here. It says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head. Now, this is not a few little droplets of oil, folks. This is a lot of oil. This is the fullness of oil. You say, how do we know that? It said, it is like the precious oil upon the head. Running down the beard. The beard of Aaron. Is that the same event of Leviticus 8? Absolutely. The beard of Aaron. Now notice, this is so abundant, it not only covers his head, it runs down his beard, but it it says, running down on the edge of his garments. I mean, this is an abundance of oil. To, To have the oil on the head, down the beard, down the garments, but it doesn't even end at the bottom of his garments because it said it is like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. The oil is so abundant that it goes onto his head, down his beard, down his garments, and it's yet so abundant that its drops even fall on the mountains of Zion where God has commanded a blessing. Now who was gathered on the mountains of Zion on the day of Pentecost? The disciples were gathered there. Do you know that what happened on earth was really not the significant event on the day of Pentecost? What happened on the day of Pentecost on earth was simply an announcement of what had taken place in heaven. God the Father had clothed Jesus as high priest. And Jesus had, God the Father had given Jesus the promise of the Spirit because it was for Him before us. He was anointed according to Peter in his sermon on the day of Pentecost. He is Christ and Lord. The word Christ means Messiah. He was anointed on the day of Pentecost because he received the Holy Spirit, the promise in its fullness, and he poured it up upon the disciples. And what the disciples received was simply the little droplets. They were gathered on the mountains of Zion. Are you following me? That's the reason why in Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul, whom I believe is behind the writing of the book of Hebrews, now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. So what was happening during those ten days that Jesus was in heaven? Well, we studied part of it in our first study this morning, and that is Jesus ascended. You know, he was received into the holy place. He met with his father. He wanted to make sure that his sacrifice was sufficient. And then we're told that his father did what? If you look at the type, his father clothed him piece by piece with the garments of the high priest and then gave him the promise of the spirit, which is the oil. The oil represents the Holy Spirit. And when he gave him the promise, the droplets of the promise fell upon the disciples in the upper room. And the tongues of fire and the mighty rushing wind 
and them speaking in languages that they had not learned before was an evidence that Jesus had received the promise of the Spirit and that he had poured it out upon the disciples who were gathered in the upper room on earth. The important event was not on earth. The important event was in heaven. And the earthly event was simply an announcement of what had taken place in heaven. We still haven't answered the question. Why did they have to elect apostle number 12 before the Holy Spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost? The answer is found once again in the type in the Old Testament. Go with me to Exodus 28 and we'll read verse 21 and then we'll read verses 29 and 30. Exodus 28 verse 21 and verses 29 and 30. Folks, there is nothing in the Bible that is not important. Every little detail is vital. Don't skip over thing, anything and say, oh, this is just to kind of fill out the picture. No, no, no. We're going to see now how important details are. Now notice the garments of the high priest. It says in chapter 28 and verse 21, And the stones, there were twelve stones in the, twelve stones in the breastplate. It says, and the stones shall have what? The names of the sons of Israel. But the, but the sons of Israel represented what? They were the representatives of all of Israel, right? So, and the stones shall have the names of the sons of Israel, twelve according to their names, like the engravings of a signet, each one with its own name, they shall be according to the twelve tribes. You see, twelve individuals, and then it mentions twelve what? It mentions twelve tribes. Because the twelve tribes, the Old Testament church, comes from the original twelve apostles. So the breastplate had how many stones? It had twelve stones. And what did the twelve stones represent in the Old Testament? They represented the twelve sons of Jacob, and by extension, the twelve tribes of Israel. Now, do you think Jesus has a breastplate? If Jesus is serving as high priest, do you think Jesus has a breastplate? Of course he has a breastplate. How many stones do you think the breastplate has? Now, where would you get that idea? <laughs> if, if the Old Testament is the type, it must be that Jesus has a breastplate. In fact, Ellen White saw the description of the garments of Christ, so we know that he did have a breastplate. And the breastplate must have what? Must have 12 stones. Now let's go to verses 29 and 30. And then we're going to come to the conclusion of this matter. It says, So Aaron shall, listen carefully, shall bear the names of the sons of Israel on the breastplate of judgment over his heart when he goes into the holy place as a memorial before the Lord continually. And you shall put in the breastplate of judgment the Urim and the Thummim, and they shall be over Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. And now don't miss this point. So Aaron shall bear what? Shall bear the judgment of whom? The judgment of the children of Israel over his heart before the Lord continually. What does the high priest bear continually? He bears the judgment or the condemnation of God's people upon his what? Upon his heart. Not only the twelve founders, but all of those whom they represent. Are you with me? Now go with me to Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5. This is a beautiful picture. You know, when, when, we, when we sin, we can't come to the Father and say, I sinned, forgive me. No. What do we have to do? We have to receive Jesus as our substitute. We have to come, we have to repent and confess our sin and in faith and in trust say to Jesus, Jesus, you know, I deserve death because I, don't, I can't offer the law the perfect life that the law requires. But I trust that you lived your perfect life. And I trust that you, that you bore my sins on the cross. And therefore, I trust that you can take your life and you can take your death and you can place them to my account so that I'm looked upon as if I had never sinned. 
So Jesus goes before his father. He says, Father, I bore the judgment. I took Pastor Bore's judgment. Accept him in me. And the Bible says we're accepted in the beloved. Ellen White says that God looks upon us as if we had never sinned. That's what's meant by the fact that Jesus wears the, judge, uh, the, the breastplate of judgment, our judgment. Notice Isaiah 53, 4 and 5, a beautiful messianic prophecy. It says, surely he has borne, that word born is the identical word, shall bear the judgment. Surely he has borne what? Our griefs and carried our sorrows. Does Jesus bear that upon his, upon his heart? Yes. Absolutely. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for what? For our transgression. He was, does he bear our judgment upon his heart? Yes. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we, we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus bears our judgment before his Father. When we come to him in faith, when we come to him in repentance, and confessing our unworthiness. Now you say you still haven't answered the question. Why did they have to elect apostle number 12 on earth before the Holy Spirit could be poured out on the day of Pentecost? Here's the reason. Jesus in heaven was clothed as the high priest. Which means that Jesus had the breastplate. And how many stones did the breastplate have? Twelve. But the problem is that on earth there were only eleven founders. You're not with me. There were only eleven apostles. But the twelve stones represent the twelve apostles. The founders of the gospel church. And so they say, before Jesus can wear the breastplate with the 12 stones, we have to elect apostle number 12. Did it have to happen before the day of Pentecost? Before Jesus began his work as high priest? Yes. So was Saul of Tarsus, the one that should have been apostle number 12? No, Jesus would have had only 11 stones on his breastplate for three and a half years. <laughs> but Jesus was clothed with a full breastplate with 12 stones. Because the twelfth apostle had been elected on earth. Now one more point before we bring this to an end. When we finally reach the new Jerusalem. Do you know that all of God's people are going to be represented there? From the Old Testament church and from the New Testament church. Let's read about it in two closing texts. Revelation 22 and verse 12. Revelation chapter 22 and verse 12. Speaking about the gates of the city. It says, Also she had a great and high wall with twelve gates and twelve angels at the gates and names written on them which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. Is the Old Testament church represented there? Absolutely. How about the New Testament church? Let's go to Revelation 21 verse 14. Just two verses further down. It says, Now the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. One city with God's people from all ages in that city. Represented by the twelve names of the founders of the Old Testament church and the twelve names of the founders of the New Testament church. All of God's people gathered there forever. You know, before Jesus went to heaven, while he was in the upper room, he said to his disciples, let not your heart be troubled. Because their heart was troubled because in the previous chapter, Jesus says, I'm leaving. And the apostles, and, and the, Peter says, where are you going? Jesus says, where I'm going, you can't follow me now, but you'll follow me later. Peter said, I don't want to go later. I want to go now. He loved his master. And so after Jesus said that they weren't going to be able to follow him, then they were really troubled. And so at the beginning of chapter 14, Jesus says to them, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. 
in my father's house there will be many mansions. Is that what it says? You know this idea that Jesus went to heaven to build houses. Were the, were the mansions already there when Jesus spoke? Yes. Jesus does not need 2,000 years to build houses. Jesus said, in my Father's house are many mansions. They were there when he spoke. If it were not so, I would have told you. And then he says, I go to prepare a place for you. And you know, I think we've misunderstood what that is really meaning. You know, we, we generally understand it as Jesus going up to heaven and planting trees and working as a contractor. Yeah, he went to prepare a place for us. Now, I'm not saying that he's not going to prepare a nice place for us. But when you study the book of Hebrews and you study the book of Revelation, you discover that the way Jesus prepares the place for us is through the work that he performs in the sanctuary. It's through his intercessory work and through his work of judgment, revealing who are his, that Jesus prepares the way for his people. And then he ends by saying, I go to prepare a place for you. So we need to understand Hebrews and, and Daniel Revelation to understand what he's been doing, preparing the place up there. And then he ends by saying, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And I love this. And receive you to myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Heaven is about being with Jesus. If there were none of those uh, fringe benefits... <laughs> like street of gold, a tree that produces 12 manner of fruit, water that really tastes like water, <laughs> gates of pearl, foundations of precious stones, traveling throughout the universe, talking to the great heroes of faith. Oh, that's nice. But if only Jesus was there, it would be worth it. That where I am, you may be also. You know, as all of these texts emphasize that point. In his great high priestly prayer, Jesus says, Father, I want those that you have given me to be with me where I am. Even in that great resurrection passage of the Apostle Paul, after he says, the Lord will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, the trump of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And sometimes we forget, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. <laughs> and of course, you know that the heavenly city is called the New Jerusalem. But do you know that Ezekiel 48 says that the name of the city is going to be the Lord is there. And if you read Revelation chapter 22, it says, The tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them. Folks, just having Jesus there makes it worth it. So, so let's not get attached to this world. We got so much stuff that the Lord couldn't take us out of the world with the most powerful crane in the universe. The more we have, the more it's going to burn. And so instead of saving for a rainy day, we should be investing for when that time comes. And, you know, many of you have heard me say that, you know, in Noah's day, Noah invested everything he had in the ark. The rest were saving for a rainy day. And what happened when the rain came? They lost it all. So now is the time where we should consecrate our lives to the Lord and give our all to him for the finishing of the work. Because I'll tell you, the way the world is going, it's going downhill and it's going fast. And soon, people are going to be willing to listen. People want explanations for what's happening now. People are perplexed. You know, I've been involved in evangelism. I preach in different places. People are perplexed. Their hearts are filled with fear because they don't know where things are going. We know! We have the book, The Great Controversy. 
We know what's happening. We know what's going to happen. We know how to get ready. And woe to us if we don't go out and tell people. If we're too embarrassed to tell people. Because, you know, if we're just preaching the gospel like the evangelicals, we don't have any reason to exist. We have to preach that Jesus is our Savior, that Jesus is our intercessor, all in the light of what is happening now in Bible prophecy. Present truth. And not simply, you know, what everybody else is preaching. Because the churches do not have present truth. And I don't see this arrogantly, but I say it truthfully. And woe to us if we don't go out and tell people what's really happening. We can use glow tracts. I mean, how much work is it to give out a glow tract? I mean, they, all of us can be doing something to share God's message and, tell, message and tell people how much Jesus loves them, how close he has them to his heart. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for being willing to send Jesus the most precious gift that could ever be given. And not given for a season, but given to us forever to be our brother. What a tremendous privilege. What a privilege it will be for the capital of the universe to be transferred to planet Earth, the headquarters, and your redeemed people living in the very presence of you and of your son, Jesus. Father, we don't want to miss out on that. We want to be there. Please prepare us and empower us to reach as many souls as possible because you love each one as if there was no one else in the world in existence. We thank you, Father, for having been with us and thank you for hearing our prayer. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources, visit us online at gycweb.org.